Hello and welcome to another episode of the Surgical Society podcast with myself, Frank Davis, as your host. Please make sure to follow and rate this podcast as well as following Cardiff University Surgical Society's Instagram, CU underscore SurgeShock. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dean Burnett, who is a Cardiff alumni having studied neuroscience as an undergraduate. He is now a well-known and successful author with his bestseller being The Idiot Brain. Hello, Dr. Dean Burnett. Thank you very much for coming on the Surgical Society podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Great. So we've got uh, a lot to get through today, some very sort of interesting <laughs> topics of uh, conversation. But I always mm-hmm. like to start with some quickfire questions. So right. firstly, um, are you binging anything on the TV at the moment? I just binged the uh, <clears throat> sort of overlooked Marvel uh, short TV series Hitmonkey. It's an animated cartoon about an assassin who gets uh, double-crossed and killed, and a Japanese snow monkey ends up taking his place. Um, it is exactly it's exactly as it sounds, but it's actually really good. So I recommend that. Uh, it's not for children. It's a, you know it's very much a manga-style blood and guts thing, but um, it's literally about a monkey. So you can't really go wrong. I think can't really go wrong. monkey in a suit. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, fair enough. I've, I have to. Say, I've never never heard of that. Um, yeah, it's really flew under the radar. So it's an odd, it's really yeah. good. It's one of the best things they've done, I think. But um, yeah, it's, I think the, the, the premise is a bit too. People heard it and then goes, "That can't be real." I just never, never thought about it again. Sure, is my suspicion. And so I know that you were a student in uh, in Cardiff. Uh, what was mm-hmm. your go to night out? Oh, um, never been much of a clubber. Uh, so we should be talking two thousand to two thousand three undergraduates, then two thousand six to ten PhD. Uh, I used to go to the TAV a lot. When I mm. first um, came to the Student Union, it was like the, the TAV pub, which sort of sold me coming to Cardiff. I wanted to do neuroscience anyway, but um, but it was rustic, sort of you know, a lot of dark wooden beams. It was like a classic old man pub, but for students. And I really liked that. And it was the third year, uh, the summertime, and they did it all up into modern, trendy, you know, patterned floors yeah. and artwork thing. And just, oh, that's, that's, that's a letdown, you know? So... Um, it was just going to the tab a lot during my uh, the tavern my first two years. Uh, we used to go to the nightclub on a Friday. Uh, it was called Lash Tastic at the time. We just called it Lash, and because my housemates and I just lived right behind the union, we every week we tried to be the mother. What we wanted to buy the first tickets. So oh like, yeah. you know, When you buy tickets, it's got zero zero four and a ticket number. Uh, I think zero zero three was the lowest we got. I think they must have just printed two off to test a printer or something because. I had lectures at 9 a.m. on a Friday morning when the tickets went on sale. And I would just like turn up and wait for the box office to open. Even then, I didn't get didn't the get first the ticket. One, so, yeah. Yeah. And then finally, when you're not studying the brain or, or writing books, what's your sort of go-to you know, activity or, or thing that you do to sort of unwind or, or relax? Um, <clears throat> um, I still like, I like to read um, sci-fi stuff as a sort of unwinding thing. Um I don't get a lot of time to do much relaxing at the moment because uh, two small children, dog, cat, mm. uh, job, which doesn't have any particular hours. And uh, wife works a lot as well. We've got other things we're working on. So, yeah, I'm just like general reading. Uh, you know, sci-fi is my go-to because, of course, it is. So I just I have that energy about me. Um, so I do my own podcast and stuff. Just uh, picked up those during like, the pandemic when you know, meeting people in person wasn't much of an option. 
And they still meet up with some good friends every now and again. And, uh, you know, we just talk absolute nonsense for hours on end in, in a pub in Cardiff. Yeah, I don't have much of a, any sort of a, you know, a recreational life. Mm. Mostly through the kids now. My son's really into sport, which has been a very sharp learning curve for me. Uh, I started going to the gym like early last year, decided post-pandemic that I would share shed as much of the uh, grief and isolation weight that I put on as I could, and it's going okay. So take a boxing. I've got a boxing punch bag in here somewhere now. So, uh, you know, generally I'm trying not a lot. I turned 40 last year, so I'm trying not a lot of new things. Nice. Okay. Let's see what I can get into. So now on to yourself. So I want to start sort of with the beginning. And, and you were born in, in the Valleys and went to mm-hmm. a, a comprehensive school. So when did you first get a feel that you were going to go into the sciences and into neuroscience? Um, this is something I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about in recent years because you know, stuff I've been writing has had a more personal element to it. Um, a lot of stuff like I can pin in my childhood where I became sort of you know, vaguely interested in mind and brain stuff uh but i think it was a general thing of i was always like a quite bookish child you know i was sit in my room and read stuff and i wouldn't want to go out or you know, play sports drink a lot and which was you know, the the default for most people my peer groups and my you know, all the adults around me i lived in a pub so i saw you know on that sort of lifestyle mm. and i think that was part of it i think it was like living in that environment where you know, like, i had a good childhood i appreciate it and it was a really you know, fun interesting time but when you see people drinking all the time and you know what happens to them as a child, I think that puts you off for a long time. So I was not a huge proponent of alcohol. I, I, I've learned to, I've learned to overcome my uh, prejudices since <laughs> the, I would have a drink now and again. So, um, but yeah, but I was always a bit different. Like, you know, my, you know, I was the introverted one. I mean, these days, I think my might have been assessed as not being uh, neurotypical. So. But you know, I was always curious as to why am I so different from my family and friends. And you know, logically, you end up thinking that no, must be something to do with my brain. Maybe my brain's different to everyone else's. And I've got a few. Well, they weren't easy to get at the time. I got a few like very rudimentary brain books from like the mid nineties and things like that. And I don't never really found an answer. Because obviously, it's from those. Those are just very generic texts. But that did sort of get me kind of interested in. Ooh, this is brain stuff. But I, I was a sci- science fiction fan anyway, you know, just watching all the Star Trek, which is when it was on TV. And in school, like I sort of made the connection, oh, like the stuff I watch on TV, this is this is this stuff, sciences and things like that. And um, yeah, I just end up sort of gradually, organically going in that direction. Uh, I think I, I looked like the sort of classic science nerd as a kid anyway. So it was one of those things, people, no, no, one, no one thought, you know, otherwise to stop me. Um, yeah, so I ended up just going down that path. I just wanted to pursue science. And one of the classic tales I tell is of how uh, atypical that was, is that my school was a very large, comprehensive school, uh, over a 1,000 students, I think, something like that. And the year I did my A-levels, uh, in a, for the final year of A-levels, the, you know, the, if you added up the physics, chemistry, and biology A-level classes, you only got seven students. Wow. And, of the, and of those seven, three were me. I was the only one doing three sciences. So I was responsible for half my school's science A-level output. Uh, it was, you know, pressure was on because obviously if I failed an exam, I got a bad mark. They literally would throw off the school averages and that was um, an interesting uh, <laughs> position to be in. So, yeah, so that was, that's sort of how I ended up in that direction. And um, I was encouraged to go to university because, again, the school looked like, like to have success stories and I was the only 
male scientist enthusiast they'd had for goodness knows how long. And you know, they said you should go to university. And I didn't even know what that was when I started, at least GCSE time. I think, what, what, is, what is this university? What do you speak of? And they explained, no, it's the next stage of education. And I, Can you do that? Is that a thing? And I was, when I heard about it, I was keen and um, ended up applying lots of places, even Cambridge, which was um, ill-advised, should we say. I, I got an interview, but it didn't go uh, as one would hope. Um, but again, entirely, mostly on my um, on my part, because I was not given any insight as how that place works. And But I wouldn't be comfortable there anyway. So, you know, it's not any poor uh, reflection on them. But uh, yeah, so I came to Cardiff uh, the day out of the neuroscience course, because, oh, neuroscience brains, I, I want to know about that. And uh, one of the professors took a, you know, in the lab tour, took a brain out of a bucket and just showed us. I thought, right, this is where I want to be, because I want to do stuff like that. And um, yeah, essentially, I've been here ever since. I haven't actually, uh, you know, I've never moved from Cardiff since I came. So here we are. Well, you talk about getting the sort of the degree, and then you later got your PhD as well from from Cardiff. But then you haven't gone down the sort of traditional career path, shall we say, for someone with a no. neuroscience degree. You've done stand up. You've obviously written books. Where where did that come from? What inspired that? Well, the uh, the stand-up side of things, um, like I said, my family, the Benets back home, are very uh, gregarious, outgoing types. And I never was as a kid, but I was sort of, I think that that aspect of the, the Bennett family genome kicked in later on in life. Uh, but I've um, never been musical. I don't have, I like music, but I don't have any skills in that area. Mm. So I don't sing or dance or anything. Um, again, a lot of my family also don't have many skills in that area, but it hasn't stopped them. But I'm sort of a bit more self-aware or... Uh, have some sense of restraint, or less shameless, perhaps, uh, more shameless than they are. But regardless, the um, yeah, but I like to doing stage stuff, like making people laugh. So I end up doing like the panto with the drama society, university, and some improv, and uh, you know stuff like that. But never really had the uh, the bravery to do stand up. It was just you know, a step too far. Stand there as yourself in front of people, and uh, but then after my first degree I didn't go straight into the PhD I was I was very wary of being one of those uh cliches you hear about someone who's too scared to enter the real world and get a job and I didn't want to be that I thought well I need to get my hands dirty at some point so end up working for the medical school uh in the in the anatomy department uh helping embalm the cadavers which medical students dissect for you know the first year of um surgical training. So if you've ever been to that, you've probably seen some of my handiwork. Uh, it's not the best because it's obviously, it's a dissected cadaver. So it's not going to look great in anyone's, but you, know, you do that for a year and a half, your, um, your parameters for what's tolerable or what isn't or what scares you, what doesn't, it changes radically. So I end up, you know what, what is, you know, if I do some comedy, no one laughs, um, they're still breathing. That's still better than my day job. I'm just going to do it because I'm, I need to do something you know, to break me out of this dark place I'm in with this, with this job. And it did it, and it went okay, and I sort of ended up popping on that regard, but um, you know, just getting a bit more of a following. And I sort of eventually realised that I preferred writing material to delivering it. I like I like doing stuff on stage, but I've always, you know, the writing part was always the more fun thing for me. And then I got introduced to the concept of blogging, and that was like, oh, so I can write stuff down, put it in front of people, and I don't have to leave the house. That was... Uh, you know, like, oh, it's a revelation for me. I can do what I want to do and just, you know, minimum effort or expense at least. And I 
just started doing that. You know, I developed a little sort of cult online following for my uh, efforts to combine humor and science because uh, that wasn't something uh, people were doing a lot of at the time. Still, still a relative rarity. It's more of a, more of a thing now. Um, yeah, so I ended up sort of writing uh, just comedy blogs about scientific topics and trying to make science funny via various avenues and outlets. Um, so like, this is uh, during my PhD uh, years, and I just had a lot of bad luck, my PhD, because uh, a lot of the results I was hoping to get, it didn't get, and there's like lab shutdowns and... You know, like the, in the academic world, uh, in research and sciences, you know, the whole publish or perish mantra is very much correct. And I didn't have any first author credits. I had a few second author and a few studies which were you know, reliable, but I wasn't like the primary investigator on any papers. And my efforts to get a postdoc were, you know, I was really at a real disadvantage. And this combined with the fact that I was still figuring out how this world works. I said, like, I'm not from this background at all. So whereas most of my peers were doing a PhD and they knew what they should be doing, they should be applying to go to conferences and uh, things like that. I didn't even know I should do that you know, until it was relatively late in the day. So it was also at a disadvantage when it comes to pursuing an academic career. But I ended up um, doing a lot of guest lectures for the Cardiff Medical School Psychiatry Program. And then they expanded into an online version. I ended up being you know, getting a job as the Go to course tutor and coordinator for that. So I spent like seven years then um, writing my blog, which at this point we picked up by the Guardian because um, they expanded to the science blog network. And someone who's doing humorous science stuff was like, "Oh, that's that's a niche that no one's yeah. uh, no one's occupying." So they got picked up and joined their their team. And I was lecturing uh, psychiatry, lecturing lecture about mental health, uh, the latest advances, the um, you know the management, the underlying science, and so on and so on. So I was like on two fronts. I was developing as a writer and a mental health professional in some in many ways, shape or form. And I it was then because uh, of my Guardian work was getting more and more popular. It is very niche, but also it was a very new thing. People uh, weren't used to seeing. And I got approached by a book, a literary agent out of the blue saying, your blog's good. Do you want to write a book? And I, I honestly hadn't thought about it at this point. I thought, well, I thought about it in the sense of, That'd be a nice thing to do, like a daydream, but I didn't think it would actually ever happen. Mm. And, uh, you know, so we talked about it and flashed out some ideas. Um, but then something happened in um, 2014. Yeah, 2014. Robin um, Williams died uh, of suicide and he was hit the news and uh, came in the office that morning. Like, oh, God, that's terrible. And, and already uh, the news had been out for like five hours because of the US time zones. And already you see in pundits and opponents saying, oh, it's so selfish. People do that. It's so taking your own life like that. It's just pure selfishness. And also pretty prominent people in the States, at least, uh, been saying this, you know, for shock for uh, for various other reasons. But um, uh, someone who's been working in mental health and psychiatry for like several years at this point, and someone who's from the Bridgend area, who uh, was there, you know, by family were affected by the Bridgend suicide state, as they mm. called it in the year 2010. And the atrocious media coverage that got, uh, which caused other many other problems, I'm sort of very uh, opposed to this whole approach, you know, like just spouting nonsense about suicide when it happens to someone prominent uh, in the in a, in a mainstream platform. And I remember thinking someone should say something in the media about why that's not the case, you know, why it's not selfish. And I remember I actually had a, access to the Guardian at this point, so I could have done it myself. So I will do. I did like 
We spent like an hour on it because I mean, like during my lunch break. Um, you know, just to explain a wide depression, suicidal, and selfish. It's not how it works at all. So just then they said, yeah, we'll put it up. But, uh, you know, it's busy day for Robin Williams stories, so it probably won't get much traffic. Because, yeah, no, no, I just feel better for having said something. Mm. And it got like two million hits in the space of like 36 hours. And so like, oh, this clearly people have been waiting for someone to say this and it turned to be me. But that suddenly then I was the mental health brains guy uh, in, in the media for many people. And with the, you know, the publishers suddenly paid a lot more interest because, uh, oh, you're that guy. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But um, yeah, so my, my first book sort of boosted along the prospects of it. I released that and I remember thinking that this is the idiot brain, my first ever book. And my thoughts were like, this will come out. Um, hopefully enough people who read my blog will buy a copy eventually. It'll break even. And uh, there we go. I've done a book. I'll never speak of it again. But it went, you know, again, turned out to be something people wanted to read and but extremely successfully still selling and as a result i'm um you know, now i'm writing books is my job now so uh so yeah that's why it's a very roundabout circuitous route and takes into account stand of comedy cadaver embalming you know the public suicide and uh psychiatry veteran but it's you know, it got me to this point which is a very interesting place to be but it's not something i could tell other people to, to mimic because you know it was completely <laughs> completely random chance a lot of it so no it's not a career path i would advise anyone taking but um, I'm, I'm happy that i took it sure and um your sort of career like you say is, is taking different turns but you've managed to share the stage with some other sort of like big names such as like professor brian cox and simon Pegg. Mm-hmm. did you ever imagine that was going to happen and what was that experience like it's very very weird it's one of those things where i'm i'm not one of those who get starstruck um or i don't like asking autographs uh, i'm always very wary of bothering people it's like a, it's always been a innate concern of mine like i even don't I never just like using the phone as a kid it's like what if i'm calling someone and they don't want to be called and uh so yeah so I, i'm not one to approach a random famous person if i'm in the same room and go oh, i'm a big fan of your work because i know i just i, I kind of shake the feeling they'll they'll find that uncomfortable but yeah it's um it's really interesting to share the stage with such big names, people. I mean, when you come, the Welsh side of things actually makes it a bit different. So when you're Welsh, uh, there's a whole other uh, effect from that. In that, like, I used to get quite annoyed when I was becoming more and more sort of prominent in various circles. We would say, "Oh, you're Welsh. Uh, do you know Rob Brighton? Do you know Tom Jones?" And like, and I used to get like, "No, come on. I, mean, I know it's a small country, but it's not that small. Yeah. It's like one village." But then, um, but then things started to happen. Like I, uh, <laughs> it was like I think it was on towards a friend, someone once, and then my phone rang, and answered, and it was Charlotte Church. I was asked to Charlotte Church. I was, oh, you know Charlotte Church. As well, that happened because Rod Gilbert texted me one night. Because actually, no, I really need to reappraise that objection to the Welsh thing. You just seem to end up connected to all other Welsh people if you're in any way prominent. It's something we do apparently, but. Um, like I was talking to like uh, friends who are into sport. Like, so I know John Derrick was a rugby player. He goes, oh yeah, I was the page boy at his wedding. And you know, just <laughs> I was. Yeah. So one of those, yeah, strong Welsh things. So uh, I think that come, uh, I have a different attitude f- from that perspective too. Like we don't have that sort of, oh, you know, grandiose person type uh, type um, attitude to things. Sure. But yeah, but you know, it's, I think when you also when you're in the you know the science communication field, there is is much smaller pool. Your your playing with him. I met Simon Pegg. He was filming Hot Fuzz in a place in Wells where I was doing a gig. So it wasn't like we were colleagues. Uh, he was in the same room, said hello. And, um, but he was being 
uh, you know, talked about loads of people and I uh, just gave him, you know, gave him a space and I've been in a room like with Eddie Izzard and uh, let's say Brian Cox is a very nice, very nice guy, but he is exactly as he comes across on the screen. He's not putting anything on. He is like, that was the way with the fairies. Like looking at the galaxies and maybe he's talking to you, you know, you staring into the depths of the universe. But, mm. um, you know, that is him. He is not, you know, that's not an affectation at all. He's never, but he never switches off. He's always like, yeah, you know, nice that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but uh, so you do end up talking to people like that because your you know, your field is kind of small, and um, you you feel more like a colleague in that respect. But I've never really um, I've never been one for role models or like heroes and stuff. I don't know if it's something because when I was a kid growing up, I was so different to everyone, okay, like, in, in the authority around me. So I never made that connection I mean I find people inspirational and I find like oh that's a good person they've done good things and you should try to do similar things yourself but I don't know when it comes to role models or like emulating people I find that ends up in a sort of unhelpful place pretty quickly like you see it online all the time when someone who's prominent uh, you know for doing something good ends up being out as I've done something bad or at least you know objectively dubious People because they're a human being, you know, not necessarily which hurts anyone, just like they've done something which is a bit self-indulgent or uh, they had a relationship which didn't work very well. And suddenly half the people who don't like them are saying this is a terrible person and people who do like them automatically jump into their defense and won't see any ill in them. And you know, that's not how anything works. And I do think it gives you a very warped perspective when you have idols and role models like that. So I try to you know, treat everyone as an individual with their own internal life and you know, being a neuroscientist helps that because you know how complex people are. But yeah, so it's interesting. It's always nice to meet you know, prominent people like that, but um, it's not something I've, uh, it's, sure. not, it's not a, it's not like sort of a, a, it's not something I aspire, I want to do or you know, it's yeah. not something I'm, I don't do this because I get to you know, rub shoulders rich and famous. I, I, I can take or leave that personally. And I want to get into your, your books now. Um, obviously, you are you are an author, um, sort of full time now. Your first book, mm-hmm. uh, bestseller, The Idiot Brain. I must have read that about a year ago now. What was your sort of firstly motivations behind it? And two, uh, when I read, it, I noticed you know you're trying to put humor in science, but also you're trying to make neuroscience maybe a bit uh, like easier access for the public. Mm. Yeah, um, a lot of thoughts behind that book. Um, it was an interesting one because, like I say, I came out book reading, uh, book reading, book writing, probably by a oddly circuitous route, by a blogging route. And I never, you know, blogs are, whenever you think of them, relatively short. You know, I, I could turn out a blog in two hours' time. That was fine. They hadn't done. Um, so, but anyway, that's, that's the way I became known as. I was, my style developed in that, in that, in that way, just short, sharp, um, uh, brief explainers, which contain you know, all you need to know. So doing a book was a bit of a daunting prospect, but I never really thought about it because I was under the impression like I wouldn't be allowed to write a book, a uh, science book, because I had read obviously many different science books and nonfiction and things like that. And they always seem to be written by, unless if it's not a journalist doing an investigation or something, it's always by scientists who are prominent, who have like you know, a respected body of work behind them. Like you're a scientist, you become an accomplished scientist, respect in your field, and then you can write a science book. That's that's how I thought it worked. And anyway, it does work like that for many people. Um, 
but as I say, I never had much scientific success. You know, there's, there's no, you know, the Burnett model of your cognitive processing out there anyway. Well, if it is, it's not me. That's not, mm. it's not this Burnett. Uh, so I didn't think I would be like allowed to write a science book that didn't have the scientific clout for it. But you know, it, that's not how it works. If you've got a voice and uh, something to say, then anyone can write a book. Uh, it's just whether people buy it is another matter, but that you, you can do it. So when I was being approached by you know, publishers to say, do you want to do a book? Uh, I was confused about what it would be about. Another thing I was sort of railing against, uh, not railing, but sort of constantly trying to probe against was uh, the, the public perception of the brain and brain-based things as if like you have to treat the brain with reverence and with like a sense of awe, even respect. And when you've been a neuroscientist for any length of time, I think you quickly realize that that's not really how it works. You can have, you know, you can like the brain, you can admire it, you can be really interested in it, but it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's got loads of things, quote unquote, wrong, or which objectively are inefficient or unhelpful or make no sense or just weird. And uh, I was sort of saying, like, I, I don't want to, I don't feel like I can write the brain book because I don't have this uh, default deference to the brain and its amazingness that other books seem to have. But anyway, it became sort of uh, established that, well, you should write that. You should say, you know, that should be your thing. You could um, point out how the brain isn't perfect. You should, if, if, if everyone's under this impression that our brains are brilliant and marvelous and magical, that's a, that's a balloon you can puncture. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's actually a good point. That's what I can do. And I end up uh, writing like that. Um, but one thing about my approach and <clears throat> um, methods and uh, goals and writing is that it comes from the background of not being an academic, growing up and having no academic background. Um, and also feeling kind of, I don't know, um, slightly, slightly like an outsider in the academic world because I was like, trying to figure things out as I went along. So I know what it's like to feel, you know, um, talked down to, to be, uh, you know, kind of excluded by things. And I, I know it's not very nice. You know, I'm not of the right background, not of the right voice. I don't have the right uh, qualifications to do this. You know, I didn't come, to, they didn't go to the right school. Or so. so that's something I've, it's not been a constant thing. You know, I'm still a straight white guy. I don't have much of a <laughs> hardship in life as a result of that. But it's still, you know, it's been a, it's been a thing in British society is quite class orientated. And uh, no, so I, I don't like it. I don't like, you know, um, the idea of doing it to other people in turn. So I've never wanted to talk down to anyone. And yeah, that does happen quite easily when it comes to science communication. You start dumbing down, as they say, you start pandering or you know, just making things a bit oversimple. It becomes quite, quite, you can easily get quite condescending. And it's a cliche like your old school science communicators say, well, if you can't explain it to your granny, you're doing it wrong. So, well, Maybe my grandmother isn't an idiot. Maybe, maybe she knows stuff like this, and that's not not a not a perspective you get you hear very often, or you, in the old days at least. So I've always kept that in mind, and my sort of experience is that well, if I can do it, then surely anyone has you know, the ability to do it. And because I'm not you know, not one of those, I don't have a, the highest regard for my own intellectual prowess. Um, I sort of like I, I think I have a very twisted form of uh, imposter syndrome. So I don't think I'm uh, you know, super intelligent. I think I am blagging it a lot of the time. But the fact is I've got the point where I can blag it and fool other people, then everyone else must be in the same position as me. So I, you know, I'm allowed to be here because if everyone's blagging it, then <laughs> so I have this weird sort of diplomatic um, imposter syndrome, I think. Uh, but yeah, my default assumption of writing has always been 
anyone reading this is at least as smart as me, but they just don't know what I know. So I can explain it to them you know, in more general terms. I don't have to make it less complex. And that's always been my my go-to presumption when writing anything. Like I'm writing to someone easily the same intelligence as me, but you know, they just don't have the words that I know. So I need to introduce some of these concepts in that way. And, you know, that's, it served me well in that regard. So, like, the first book was written with that perspective. And because I'm really interested in the brain, I really love everything, yeah, I know it does, but uh, that includes the flaws, includes the problems. And I think treating it like you know, it is a inefficient mess a lot of the time is probably a healthier approach than is assuming it's m- m- fantastical and mystical and marvellous all around. Because it goes wrong quite often. And then if you think it's some sort of infallible thing and it goes wrong, then that's scary. It's like, oh, there's something deeply wrong with me. Whereas if you know it's just a mess and cause it problems all the time and stuff happens to you, you go, oh, well, that's that's normal. You know, it's not great, but I'm, I can deal with that because there's nothing wrong with me per se. It's just that's how brains are. And I think that's a much healthier, more reassuring approach. Your new book, I've got it here. Um, oh, cool. emotional, <laughs> Emotional ignorance. Um, I wanted to talk about your motivations for writing that book. And I'd like sort of I've got a, a little bit that stuck out um out to me. Mm-hmm. Um and this is a quote from it. it says, um I'm not exaggerating when I say that writing this book uh kept me from the brink during the worst time of my life by helping me tackle my mm-hmm. own emotional ignorance. And that's why the book's called that. If I can help you reduce yours too, even slightly, without having to go through what I went through, I'll consider it a job well done. So what was that mm-hmm. that brink that you're sort of talking about? And can you tell us about why you've written this book? Yeah. Um, well, originally I uh, agreed to write a book about emotions uh, in a more sort of general, light-hearted way. Like the idiot brain is all about the different bits of the brain which are, you know, which are inefficient, go wrong, and this is going to be about the emotional bits. And right, why does this emotion happen? Well, fear. What's that about? And a fun and uh, easily accessible explanation of that emotion, and then this one, and this one. Um, so yeah, that was always the plan. Um, but, you know, I, I had fallen into the trap a lot of times as fall into of you know, not really paying enough attention to emotions during my career and assuming they were like uh, well-established science and you know, something we've moved on from. So you don't get a lot of, um, they're, they're mentioned often, but not necessarily any particularly complex ways. And, again, and then an emotional stimulus occurs and something else occurs. You know, it's, it's almost like throwaway. So I thought, oh, a lot of people don't, uh, you know, I think not, uh, not as a way of the science emotions as they perhaps could be because you know, everyone's affected by them. And I agreed to write it. Uh, but then it turns out that it's not so much, uh, you know, they've been established and we've moved on. It sounds like there's a conspiracy of silence among scientists to say, like, these things are really complicated. We don't know how they work. So let's just pretend, <laughs> let's just not acknowledge them and then we can get other stuff done. And the, the, the fact that I had to write a book about this was suddenly a big challenge because there was no, um, uh, I know it was my ideas for making it all simple and accessible were way beyond unlikely at this point. Like, oh, I, I can't do that. None of this science winds up. I, if I'm going to stick the actual data, then I, there's loads more questions and answers that I've got here. And um, yeah, so it's going to look like, oh, I can't actually do this. Uh, and I'm going to have to change tack and try something else. And the pandemic hit. And uh, I know, very early on, my father contracted the virus and passed away within the first like six weeks of the pandemic. And to deal with that, you know, in, during lockdown, he was quarantined. I couldn't see him. I couldn't help him. I couldn't uh, do anything. Uh, you know, in the traditional, normal way, when someone's dying, you 
go be with them. You sort of be there to witness, or at least, or take part in it. I think none of that. You know, he died alone, and it's, it's a horrific thing. And when that happened, I had no uh, outlets. You know, I had no. The funeral was like totally distanced and extremely um, in, in insufficient for you know, what we would always have, would, have, would have had. Um, like no family could come and help me you know, take care of the kids or you know, just do cooking and th- things which you, you, know, you struggle to do when you're in the midst of grief. Uh, I couldn't get away from uh, the situation. You know, like I was trapped at home, it was locked down. Uh, I couldn't escape the, the reminders of it because he died of COVID. Mm. And you know, that was on every single platform and news outlet and social media feed all day, every day for the next year and a half. And that was, you, know, you can't, Get away from you can't even like go to the pub and drown your sorrows you know that's an unhealthy approach it is an option uh, usually and i couldn't do that so i had nothing uh, to help me get over this uh, and no outlet apart from the fact that i was still under a contract obligation to write the book about emotions and that's usually how i when i've got a stress or something i try to deal with it by analyzing it, dissecting it, um, you know, getting to the bottom of it, because I find not understanding things more stressful than, un- than understanding them. And if I know what's going on, like I say with uh, brain stuff, and you know what's going on a bit better, you, it doesn't have the same impact. So I ended up sort of, you know, because I had nothing else to do, and I still had a job uh, that I had to maintain. I dissected my own grief. I got my own grief like under analysis, uh, a metaphorical corkboard and pinned it down and so why am I feeling this? What is this about? What's what on earth is my head doing this for? You know, why, why is this debilitating pain deemed necessary in the evolutionary sense? And the book's all about that. It's all like I'm sort of like, well, we have these emotions. What are they for? Why do they do what they do to us? What's the you know, what's the advantage of that? And um, find out loads of deeply interesting and informative stuff about emotions and um, how you know how they affect us on so many fundamental ways that you. Mind boggles in all the time, and they say it gave me an outlet. It gave me a way to express what I was uh, going through, uh, which, as I found out, is a really important part of emotional processing. If you bottle things up, but you have no outlet, they don't go away. You know, they stay there, causing the psychological disruption that emotional trauma does. So, by being able to write it, uh, write about it, and in such depth and um, such. You know, Honesty, I'll say, you know, just like literally saying what's happening to me right now a lot of the time. I was uh, able to process these things a lot better. And if I hadn't had the book or had this option, I don't know how I would have fared. I may have you know, got to the point of breakdown or, you know, mental incapacity. I don't know. But I feel like without the book, that was a much stronger possibility than the other it turned out to be. So, yeah, that's what I mean when I say coming back from the brink, because I, you know, I needed to do this. Uh, it was a massive lifeline for me. And uh, I think it protected me when uh, life was trying to do the opposite. No, well, it's, a, it's an incredible book and it's a testament to yourself that you managed to take that sort of bad, you know, what was happening to your father and, and turn it into what is a, into a really, really good book. In terms <laughs> of, um, you've obviously written a lot of books. We've also touched on your background as well and not coming from that academic background. Are there any lessons that you've learned, be those sort of um, neuro ones, ones from writing or ones from your background that you want to share with us um, today or any like little bits of, a, of advice? Um, yeah, I think 
This is what I said about it on, like the assuming that everyone's as smart as me, uh, just doesn't know what I know, it has been a useful, you know, mantra or tool, or whatever you want to call it, in just general life uh, as it is. Like, is in you, even if you're wrong, you know, you're not doing any harm there. So you treat someone as smart, and they don't, they, they don't know what you're talking about, which can happen. You know, the worst case scenario is they just don't don't get it, and uh, that's that's fine. You know, you haven't done anything wrong, but they haven't done anything wrong. So I find that a useful metric by you know in any sort of interaction or context just assume the people are talking to are at least as smart as you some people don't like that some people find that intimidating or you know uh, makes them feel inferior but I don't know, i've never had that i suppose because it's not just where i come from but yeah i'm i've also sort of uh, you know gotten I, I don't have much patience at the moment for the answer of like well that's just that's just how it's done um it happens a lot more than people think i think it's in like oh why don't we do why, why can't we do this? So it's just people don't do that. It's, I mean, obviously some things are bad and you shouldn't do those, but when you know, it turns to how work happens or jobs are done or how careers are pursued, it's always like, no, this is just how it's done. A lot of time there's no actual uh, you know, rule or firm barrier to stop people doing it in a different way. It's just like inertia and uh, you know, just tradition or just expectation. So I think you, know, you, you should you know, push boundaries in that respect. And when someone says like, can we do it a different way? We just don't do that. You know, try it uh, if you can, or at least to suggest it or push for it. Uh, sometimes you'll find out it's no, it's done this way for a good reason. Fair enough, then. We'll do it that way. You know, it's, it's all knowledge gained, I think. Um, I think just shutting down uh, avenues of exploration is because they haven't been used before or is mm. far too common uh, an occurrence and something which should be resisted, I think. So, you know, feel free to try different things. Like I said, I... You know, None of my career comes from doing things the normal way. Um, you know, no one's said you can't do science and comedy together. That's not possible. So I'm going to try it. You can't. Mm. You can't like write uh, for you know, a big newspaper. We just write songs. Well, I'm going to try it. You, you can't write a book when you're not a scientist, proper big scientist. Well, I'm going to try it, and you know, a lot of the time this worked out for me. So I'm obviously I'm impartial there. I'm going to say the things that work for me are good, but um, you know, <laughs> other people might find the same thing. Absolutely. And talking of your career, what is the next step? Or maybe I should say the next book? What can we expect from you? Yeah, um, I've got a sixth one uh, in the pipeline. And I'm currently pitching a seventh now, which is uh, you know still in the wraps because I haven't uh, pinned all that down yet. But the sixth book is going to be premises, uh, the title, or the, the book neuroscientists are begging you to read because I got really sick of seeing those apps, the adverts, you know, the game neuroscientists are begging you to play. <laughs> Are we? <laughs> I've not heard anyone say this. So why would why would neuroscience beg anyone to play a living cheesy puzzle game? Uh, yeah, so it's it's, a, it's an exploration of how brain science is misused in the wider world to right. sell things or promote things which don't add up or to scaremonger about things. So yeah, so it's uh, that's you know, it's going to be a bad neuroscience like Ben Goldacre, but brain specific. So that's uh, keep an eye out for that, I guess. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you today. It's been really interesting to hear about sort of your background, what you've done and what you're working on. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Surgical Society podcast. Dean's latest book, Emotional Ignorance, is out now and available to buy. 
Next week, I'm with another doctor turned author, Dr. Matt Morgan, the author of bestseller Critical. So please make sure to tune in in two weeks time.